All right, well, good morning, NBC. Good to be with you today. Uh, that video is a great reminder of those that have given their all for our freedom, and we can just say what a blessing that that is, the freedom that we enjoy in this country. A very happy Memorial Week Day weekend to you all, and it's hard to believe that this is the unofficial start of summertime, right? It's 40 degrees and raining outside. What in the world happened? It was like 90 degrees on Monday. Um, it's also surreal that the last time I spoke with you was on April the 11th, about six weeks ago. Um, if you missed that week, I shared that I'd be out of the pulpit for a little bit because my son was undergoing and is undergoing a bone marrow transplant down at the uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So before we get back into our study on Hebrews, let me give you a quick update on our, our family. First, uh, Josiah, our son, uh, has done well with the transplant overall. He followed the expected route. Uh, the tr of the transplant, uh, complete with common reactions to the medications. Um, and I have to tell you, if you don't know much about CHOP, uh, the doctors and nurses down there are just, are just fabulous. We feel very, very blessed to be there. Uh, second, I'm excited to report that he did have early engraftment, and so his bone marrow cells are coming up, his numbers are climbing, and so we're praising God for that. Um, at the same time, thirdly, even though this is, uh, we just finished week six down there. We still don't have a discharge date yet because he still is getting weaned off his pain medication, getting back on regular feeding. So we actually just found out yesterday that he did develop something called veno-occlusive uh, disease, which is treatable, uh, but it does delay his departure from the hospital. And so at the end of this initial hospitalization, there's some wild cards before he gets to go home. And finally, as we are coming to the end of this initial hospital stay, I do have to say this marathon is far from over for us, if you know anybody who's gone through transplant before. Uh, the first three months post-transplant require frequent monitoring to assess complications. Um, he won't be able to receive his vaccines until um, about eight months post-transplant, and it takes eight to 12 months for the new immune system to be firing on all cylinders. So what that practically means for our family is that while New Jersey's opening up, I'm happy to see many smiling faces out there, uh, we still need to take standard post-transplant precautions like masking and distancing to prevent like any viral infections. Uh, it's not a COVID thing, it's just like a, we forget there's other viruses out there thing. And so I'm, I'm here on stage with you today, and while it, again, is a joy to see so many smiling faces, you'll have to en enjoy mine from a bit of a distance for some time. Um, and that is difficult for us, but it is, it is kind of the way it has to be right now. This process is not a sprint, it is a marathon. But our family is incredibly thankful for the support of our church family, for your, your cards, your generosity, your love. From the bottom of our hearts, we just want to say thank you um, for all that you have done for us and how you supported us. Our journey reminds me a bit of some lessons from Hebrews chapter 10, where we find ourselves today. And since at least the early part of this week was, was pretty hot, I thought I'd open with a rather cold image today. You may not be aware that each year there's about four dozen athletes that gather in Minnesota for something called the St. Croix 40 Winter Ultra. Runners spend good money to embark on a 40-mile marathon, super marathon, at night in January with sub-zero temperatures in Minnesota while pulling along a sled packed with about 30-plus pounds of supplies. Now, in this environment, you could literally die from standing still too long. 
About 25% of the runners don't finish this race, and most of them drop out at a really interesting point. The participants reach mile marker 24. It's also known as checkpoint 24 between 10 p.m. and midnight, and what they have to do is if the runner's gonna complete that last 16 miles, they have to prove that they have the skills to stay alive in case of an emergency. So what they have to do is they stop, they set up something called a bivy bag, a bivy sack, it looks like this. It's a body-shaped tent that envelops your sleeping bag. They climb into this makeshift bed, they have to wait like 30 seconds, and then they have to unpack it and they leave. Now what they do is they have to prove that if they get tired, they, ha they can survive out there. Now personally, that sounds like the easiest part of the race to me, right? You get to sit down and take a quick nap. But when the temperatures are near zero, sub-zero, and you are covered in sweat, and you're, you're coming out of a brief respite in a sleeping bag, the temptation to quit at this point has got to be pretty strong. Now the most dangerous thing a runner can do in a race like this is stop entirely, and definitely without a sleeping bag. Don't do that. Let me say that again. The most dangerous thing a runner can do in a race like this is stop. Now, can you imagine? You're running this race. You're exhausted. You are, you are freezing. Your sweat is turning to ice, right? It, it, it's midnight in the middle of the winter in Minnesota. Right? All you want to do is just sit down and rest, but stopping or backtracking can have disastrous consequences. You got to press on. You've got to press on. And yet we're told that 25% of the people who start this race, they're not going to finish. So my question for us today is, have you ever wanted to stop? Have you ever wanted to stop? See, I suspect the majority of us out there are not runners. Some of you are. God bless you. I've always hated running. I'll get my heart rate up in another way. But there's probably some things, even if you're not a runner, that you've been tempted to stop. Right? Maybe your marriage is going through a rough patch, and you stop and you think, you know what? It would just be easier if we just stopped. Or maybe you're, maybe you're, you're pursuing that, that degree at a college, and it's harder than you thought, right? You, you're ready just to get out of there. You think, wouldn't it just be easier to stop? Or maybe, just maybe, you've been living the Christian life for a while. It's getting pretty hard, harder than you thought at the beginning when you got into this whole thing. You think, wouldn't it just be easier to stop and follow the crowd, especially today? Now, a new study from the Barna Group shows this is particularly true for young adults, Right, the researchers set out in this study to, to find what they call resilient disciples. That is 18 to 29-year-olds who attend church regularly. They trust the Bible. They're personally committed to Jesus. And they have a desire to influence the broader society. And what they found in the study is that resilient disciples make up only 10% of people who grew up in the church. Another 38% attend church regularly, but they don't meet core beliefs and behaviors associated with an engaged disciple. 30% more identify as Christian, but they no longer attend church, and a whopping 22% have left the faith altogether. They just stopped. Remember, 25% of the runners in that other race, they don't make it. Why? Why? Well, now, this is not just a young adult phenomenon. Like, I, I expect many of us in this room have, have known people who have stopped with the faith. They've given up on the faith. Perhaps even you're listening right now, and you're somebody who's questioning your faith. You're wondering, why am I going to go through this marathon of the Christian life? Why? Why do you want to give up? Well, in my experience, there's a few themes that pop up when people are running the race, they're engaged with the Christian faith, and then they just stop. Just like the runners in that St. Croix 40, people who stop running the race are carrying some baggage with them. If you're running that St. Croix 40, you got 30 pounds behind you, maybe more. 
If you're running the Christian life, sometimes you get, it's, like, it's like you got a backpack and you got some baggage in there. And it's like you're taking some rocks and throwing them in the backpack. So the first reason that people stop the race of the Christian life is because they're tired. I'm going to call this the tired rock right here. Right now, you can be tired for different reasons in the Christian life. Right? Maybe you've, you've, um, you've given your all to service in the church and you aren't being recognized. You're exhausted. Maybe, maybe secondly, maybe you're tired of all the rules of the Christian subculture. Or, or maybe you're tired of the judgmental attitudes and the lack of grace that you perceive. Whatever it is, you're tired and you just want to stop. You take this rock and you throw it in the bag and the bag gets a little bit heavier. The second reason people stop running is due to what I'm going to call tragedy. Tragedy. This is the tragedy rock right here. Something terrible happened in your life and nobody at church noticed. Or they didn't care for you very well. You started to question the goodness of God and you asked, is this race still worth running? And what happened is you decided and you stopped. There was another rock that got thrown in that bag. Now, the final reason I think people stop, and these aren't exhaustive, but I think these are common, is temptation. This is the temptation rock. It's a big rock, right? The very reason, this very reason is very devious. Many people stop running the race because they start to believe that something can offer, something else can offer love or fulfillment or safety. This is the college student who walks away from the faith because they get entangled in a romantic relationship. This is the career person who is trying to climb that corporate ladder and then Jesus becomes an afterthought and that, this gets thrown in the bag and the bag just becomes really, really heavy. See, people stop running the race because the bag gets too heavy they're tired, they experience tragedy, they're lured by temptation, whatever it is. Now, I've known people who've walked away from the faith, and I suspect many of you have as well. Family members. People I had in youth ministry when I was a youth pastor. People I've, I've pastored. Friends who I attended college and seminary with. Walk away from the faith, and it breaks my heart every time I hear a story like that. And so my, my question is, why... Why do we need a resilient faith like these guys in Barna are looking at? Because without it, we're not going to make it to the end. We'll stop at mile marker 24. And so the questions I'm asking myself this morning and this week as I'm looking at this passage, and I think the questions we have to ask ourselves is how do we maintain a resilient faith? How do we get past checkpoint 24 of the Christian life? Now, thankfully, for nine and a half chapters... The writer of Hebrews has been giving us a theological grounding, and now we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, and it, this is a message I'm entitling, Components of a Resilient Faith. What are they? Well, first, I think we're going to see that we need something called devoted provocation. I'll explain that in a minute. Second, we have to cultivate sober reverence. And then finally, we have to live out joyful suffering. So let me pray for us as we dive into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your people that are here today and are with us watching online, Lord God. We are so thankful for um, the way you have transformed our lives. Father, I pray that this morning you would spur us on, that you would stir us up to love and good works as we're going to see in your word, Lord. Help us to have a greater faith in you and to trust you with all that we are, Lord. Help us to have our hearts enlightened this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so resilient faith requires devoted provocation. You say, what in the world is that? 
Well, I promise it's going to make sense in just a moment, but first, let me give you some some context. Last week, Pastor Dave did a great job preaching through Hebrews chapter 9, describing the tabernacle, and if you didn't see our pastor's video last week, there was a great virtual tour of the tabernacle that you should go back and watch, Um, and redemption through the blood of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, is a reiteration of those themes, and we're told emphatically in that section that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Better than the old covenant sacrifices. And Hebrews 10, 12 tells us that his sacrifice is final. This is what it says in Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, under the old covenant, sacrifices were made year after year to remember sin, but they never had the power to finally and fully remove sin. So the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross has the power to do that. And now we have confidence to approach God. Look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's going to give us some exhortations. Now, if you notice that word, therefore, Anytime you see the word therefore, what do you got to do? You got to ask what it's there for. And right here, these three verses serve as a hinge. They signal the beginning of an entirely new section. Notice also they summarize all the major themes we've been discussing from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 through Hebrews 10, 18, that Jesus is our great high priest. He has given us access to God through his blood sacrifice. He's torn the veil of the tabernacle and his presence is now with us. And now the author calls us, gives us three calls to action using the phrase, let us. So verse 22 is the first one. It says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the phrase draw near is frequently used in Hebrews. You may have seen it before. In the Old Testament, it's often describing priests approaching God with sacrifices for worship. Now, the present tense of the verb indicates this is something we should do every day, continuously, come to God in worship. How do we approach God? He says, with sincerity, with faith, without guilt, and with integrity that comes in line with our confession of faith. And we're told in verse 19 that we have confidence because of the blood of Jesus. He's opened God's presence to us. He's cleansed our hearts and our minds. Okay, now he continues in verse 23. He says this, let us, let, us cons- let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Now holding fast, holding fast to the confession refers to a common belief, which again, the author spent nine chapters unpacking. And I got to say here, this is why theology is important. I know we always want to run right to the application. What do I do with this, right? But if you read Paul's letters, if you look at this letter, they spent a long time building the theological foundations because if you don't have the right theology, the way that you live out is going to be severely impacted. You have to know why you believe what you believe and that it gives you the motivation and the way that you live. So the author makes an appeal here for perseverance despite the circumstances. He says, keep running, keep running, don't Stop. Why? Because God is faithful and he's going to be with you. And then these first two let us statements set up the third. Look at verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And so in this verse, we see that clearly that component of resilient faith. 
The word consider means to think of others' needs. Now, when you think about it, what does it mean that somebody's considerate? It means that somebody else is on your mind, that you're actively thinking about them, trying to help them grow. You're praying for them. They're close to your heart. How do you help them grow? What do you do? You stir them up. You stir them up to love and good works. Other translations say you spur them on to love and good deeds, the NIV says. Now, the meaning of the word literally means to provoke. It means to provoke, to, to have a sharp conf- a confrontation. In other words, what the author is saying here is that if you want a resilient faith, you need other people in your life who are considerate and who are not afraid to stir the pot. And some of you out there said, that's me. I want to stir the pot. I like to provoke people in a good way, hopefully. So the first component of a resilient faith is devoted provocation. Devoted provocation. And the evidence of this resilient faith is love and good works. Now pause for a moment and ask yourself, do I have people like that in my life? Do I have people like that in my life? Are there other Christians in my life who are devoted to me, not just passing, they're devoted to me and who are not afraid to provoke me? And if we don't, we should ask ourselves why we don't. Because here's the thing, it's just, it is impossible to build a resilient faith alone. You need Christian community. And so the author makes it clear by using that phrase, one another, and the Greek word means mutuality. There, there's this connectedness that's needed to run the race. Otherwise, there's a high probability we're not going to finish. Look at verse 25. So verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. How do you build a resilient faith? You find other people who are devoted to you, who are going to provoke you, who are going to spur you on, and then you get together and you encourage one another. And you say, well, that's kind of elemental. Okay, but what does it look like? Well, let me just pause here and say this verse was quoted often over the last year. Like during COVID times, people all of a sudden discovered, oh, look, there's a Hebrews 10.25. Now we should talk about it. People would say, well, despite the dangers, Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. And I understand the sentiment behind that statement, but I, th- I don't want us to miss what the author is really saying here. Okay, first, we live through in an unprecedented time. Other biblical principles were at play, like loving your neighbor. How do we, how do we live that out? But secondly, I I do think the verse is talking about the importance of corporate worship, of getting together, of assembling the saints to sing the praises of God, to hear the word of God preached. That is good. But I want to offer a pastoral exhortation here. Because here's what I think the author is also saying. Attending a church service, a big church service, is not enough to live out the call of Hebrews 10.25. More is required. Now, what do I mean? Let me offer an illustration that I think describes what the author is getting at here. I think he's describing the difference between a jar of marbles and a plate of grapes. Now, what do I mean? They're both round. They're both close together. What's the difference between a jar of marbles and a plate of grapes? Well, the jar of marbles has a bunch of marbles together close in a close proximity. You know, they're squeezed in there. But if one of those marbles falls out of the, out of the jar, they're gonna, it's going to roll away. The plate of grapes, what's the difference? It's connected right, by stems and vines. They're, they're closely, intimately woven together. And so if, if you come to church, you attend a church service, everybody's kind of closely together, close, closer together now than we have been for a while, right? We're, you're all a bunch of jar of marbles listening right now to the preacher. 
But if you don't know the other people around you deeply, intimately, if you're not connected in the way that Hebrews is describing, you're missing the point of Hebrews 10.25. Because if you want to build a resilient faith, you need to have a relationship where devoted provocation can flourish. Now, my wife provokes me in a good way, right? And she does it out of love because she knows me better than anybody else. And that's why the primary purpose of marriage is to help you grow in holiness. But the question for us is really, who is it in your life, again, who's devoted to you, who considers you, who provokes you to love and good works, even if you're married? Are there other people in your life that do that? People stop running the race of the Christian faith because, yes, they're tired. Yes, there may have been a tragedy. They might have succumbed to temptation. And what happens is they get weighed down. This Because this bag is a whole lot heavier than when I first got up here. They get weighed down by the bag. And I guarantee you that most of the people who stop running the race, it's because they didn't have a community of devoted provocation in their lives. No one was considering them. No one was spurring them on. No one was encouraging them. Nobody was there to answer the tough questions they had. And when given the choice to stop, they did. In the St. Croix Ultra Marathon, you hit checkpoint 24 and you have a choice. You can decide it's not worth it to continue. It's just too cold. I'm tired. I got ice on my face because I'm sweating. But if you had a marathon partner, wouldn't it be more likely to go on? And you know who gets this? You know who gets this? Fitness apps. Fitness. Now, some of you might be on a fitness app. You might know Noom or Weight Watchers or Fitbit. You know what? They all, all of them are weight loss and fitness apps, and all of them have what? They have a community feature. Why? Because they know that you're more likely to lose some weight and finish the race if you have people pushing you, provoking you to completion. And that's what Hebrews is talking about here. We all need that encouragement. Because why? Because the second coming is approaching. And God cares about our holiness and our walk with him. And that's where the writer turns next in verse 26. We see the second component of a resilient faith, and that is sober reverence. Now, this is a heavy section. I'm just warning you, but it's needed. We need to hear this. Verse 25 sets up verse 26, and we come to this unpopular topic in our culture and in the church, frankly, and that's the topic of judgment. So Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 is that so-called fourth warning passage in the letter. In verse 26 and 27 in particular, chills should go down our spines. What's the author talking about? Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury that will consume the adversaries. I say, what in the world is he talking about here? <laughs> like, I thought we were done with this in Hebrews 6. Dave already talked about it. Yes, it's still here. And it's here because the writer knows the challenges these Christians are facing. And he wants them, and he wants us, I think, many, many years later, to understand the consequences of leaving the faith. So there's a few interpretive challenges here. Let me, let me try to unpack this briefly here. First, what does sinning deliberately mean? What's the sin in view here? Are we talking about the sin of apostasy? Are we talking about some habitual sin that people fall into? Well, let me, for, let me first say this. Every Christian, this side of heaven is going to battle sin, right? What does 1 John 1, 8 say? It says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the call of every Christian is to fight against deliberate willful sin. This is the way we grow. We fight sin, 
We should never be complacent about sin or give up the fight. This is also the main reasons Christians should be in community and not stop meeting together. We also need to be repenting daily of sin. Confession is a lost art in many churches. Repentance and confession of sin is evidence of a life surrendered to Christ. I do think, however, the author is talking about a specific sin here. I'll get to it in just a moment. Secondly, what does it mean to receive the knowledge of the truth? Are these Christians who turned away from the gospel? Notice the author includes himself in the exhortation. He uses that pronoun, we. And so given this fact, it does seem the author is speaking to professing Christians here. However, just because someone is a professing Christian, just because someone appears to understand the gospel, does not mean their lives are truly transformed by the gospel. Jesus spoke about this reality in the parable of the four soils. Do you remember the seed, the word of God, came and was understood by four different people, but it did not truly transform all of them? John writes in his letter about false believers. He says, they were among us, but they went out from us. In other words, they stopped meeting with us. And perhaps that's why, again, meeting is included in verse 25. Now, with all that in mind, I believe Hebrews is referring here to a specific sin, and this is it. It's the obstinate refusal to come to saving faith in Christ despite having clearly understood the gospel. And the result? Christ's sacrifice for sins is not effectual, only judgment and fire as God's adversaries. Now, I want to pause here and have us understand the gravity of this verse. Like, not every part of the Bible is easy to read. Now, some people would say fear has no place in the Christian life, but, but there is a healthy fear of God's holiness, Amen. and we would do right to cultivate that. I want us to feel the weight of the implications here, because if you read these verses as, as they are, I think as, they, as they're meant to be understood, this means that there are people who may have attended church their whole life. I, who, they may even be in our families. They've heard the gospel message over and over again. They may even be able to quote a bunch of Bible verses. They know the truth, and yet they refuse to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And that's where sober reverence comes in here, friends, because, I, I, man, this is, so, this is sobering. I think the author is exhorting all of us to look in the mirror and ask, is this me? To look in the mirror and ask, is this me? Am I sinning deliberately by refusing to surrender my life to Christ? God is powerful. He wants to save us, but there is judgment if we do not, because God's holy. And this verse breaks my heart, because I've sat with people, again, who've attended youth group or church, who've heard the gospel and still refuse to come to faith. Now, only God knows our hearts. But it is a difficult thing if someone we love does not bear the fruit of regeneration. Look at how the author continues, verse 28. He says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he's referring here to an Old Testament example in Deuteronomy 17 and 19. And the issue in those texts was idolatry or worship of false gods. Now, if you turned away from the law of Moses, you were essentially saying, I don't want to be considered a child of Israel, if you're, if you're engaging in idolatry and worshiping other gods. You're saying, if I wanted to be considered a child, I would obey the law. And obedience to the law was evidence 
in Old Testament of being set apart. The penalty for not doing that was death. And so the writer takes that comparison to the next level, verse 29. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, listen to this, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. In other words, violating the law of Moses resulted in death. Well, how much worse should the punishment be if you refuse the salvation offered to you in Christ? I mean, look at that language again. It's trampled underfoot the Son of God. Literally, you stomped on Jesus. You have refused his right to govern your life by not surrendering to him. You profaned the blood, he says. Now, the author's saying that by, by not recognizing Christ's sacrifice, you're treating his blood like the blood of any other person. You've outraged the spirit of grace. I mean, not know about you, but like the last thing I want to do is outrage the Holy Spirit. I've read Acts 5. It didn't go well for Ananias and Sapphira. So the implications here is that by refusing to come to saving faith in Jesus, you've rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit who was sent to draw people to the Father, we learn in John's gospel. This is the, see, I think this is the unpardonable sin that Jesus referred to in Mark 3.29. And then the author concludes with more sobering words. Verse 30, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if I was God's enemy, it would indeed be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But again, that's why sober reverence is a component of resilient faith. Because those who have it don't reject Christ. If you don't have sober reverence, you probably have rejected Christ. If you are somebody who confesses sin, if you recognize that God is holy and you are not, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you recognize he has authority in your life and he's worthy of your allegiance and worship, and that transforms the way you live. See, don't you understand that, that to encounter the living God in the full majesty of his holiness is both a terrifying and an awesome experience? Don't read... The beginning of Revelation, you'll see what happens when people come and encounter God. Now, I recognize this is a heavy, heavy section. Again, that's why it's called a warning passage. It's meant to warn people, but to spur us on, too. Don't miss that. It combats obstinacy, right? What's the root of obstinacy or stubbornness, right? Ultimately, it is our desire to govern our own lives, to be our own God's that's why the first commandment of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me, even yourself. So think again about the three reasons I gave why people stop running the race of the Christian faith. What's the temptation in this bag, these rocks that's weighing you down? Tired, right? Why are you tired? You, if you're tired, you start to think, well, God doesn't care about me, so I'm going to take care of myself. Or if, if you experience tragedy... Right? You say, well, God doesn't know what he's doing, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to reject him. Temptation? Right? Temptation, you're saying, God isn't offering me what I want. I'm going to go find something better. And that bag weighs you down. You stop following 
after him. In each case, what we're doing is we're rejecting the right of God to govern our lives. We're rejecting his saving power in our lives. We're taking matters into our own hands. Now, I don't want to minimize each of these examples I'm giving up here because if you're struggling with one of those, my goodness, we need care and compassion to be offered. We need people to come alongside those that are wrestling with this. But the point I'm making is that a rejection of God's saving grace is a serious thing, as we've seen. That's the point of this section. So how do we build a resilient faith? First, we find Christians who want to live out devoted provocation. Second, we cultivate sober reverence for our all-powerful creator. And then finally, when weariness and tragedy and temptation come into our lives, we have to discover the power of joyful suffering. And that's where the writer ends here. Joyful suffering. People with resilient faith know this point really well. Christians who find joy despite suffering are able to face challenges that come their way. They don't stop at checkpoint 24. They keep going. They persevere. The topic of perseverance is where the author ends here. Verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, the word but indicates a clear contrast, thankfully, from the previous paragraph. He's going to end on a much happier note here. It seems clear in this verse the author believes most of his audience are true believers that have been transformed by the gospel. They were enlightened. They received the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. They endured. And that word endure, they are the endurance is synonymous with perseverance. While we don't know the exact details, the author does seem to indicate there was, there was a difficult struggle. Look at verse 33. He says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction they were, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now, what's clear in these verses is that the believers were experiencing some kind of persecution for their faith. In fact, this may be why they weren't meeting together. They were afraid of the persecution. Hebrews 10.25 encourages them, find a way to get together. Now, the Greek word there for publicly exposed means they were made a spectacle of. In other words, they were publicly mocked, they were maligned, they were ostracized for their faith. The word affliction is the Greek word thlipsis, which is often translated as tribulation. It indicates verbal abuse and violent acts. And so the fact these believers endured such hardship, what he's getting at here, is evidence that their faith was real. And the reason for the warning passage is the author knows there's going to be a temptation to run away from the faith when trial comes. Now, Christians in America have generally enjoyed favor in the culture. But that seems to be shifting a bit. When I hear more and more about believers who are losing reputations or employment or relationships because of their faith. Do you feel that? The question is, will we endure like those Christians in Hebrews, or will we fall away? You may remember a pastor by the name of Andrew Brunson, pastored a small church in Turkey for a number of years and was eventually imprisoned there. In 2018, he was released, came back to the U.S., and he described his time in Turkey as, as the, the people there, the government, was hostile to his faith. But he also noted that he was noticing the same trend in the U.S., and so this is what he said. He said, I, I believe the pressures that we're seeing in our country now are going to increase. And one of these pressures is going to be hostility toward people who embrace Jesus Christ and his teaching. He continued, he said, my concern is that we're not ready for this pressure. 
And not being prepared is very, very dangerous on a number of levels. Will our faith be resilient enough for a coming persecution? Will we joyfully suffer? Look at how the Hebrew Christians respond to verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better and abiding possession. Amen. A better possession and an abiding one. Look at what they face. They face prison. Right? There was enough hostility in their day and age to put them behind bars for Jesus. Despite that, they were a source of light for those around them. Loss of property. Right? Would you be willing to lose your house, your car, your organization for Jesus? How were the believers able to endure with joy? Commentator Dan Allen makes this observation. He says, the reason the readers could endure such persecution was because they kept an eschatological, a future-oriented eye towards God's promises. They knew they had better and lasting possessions. And this needs to be preached. They were able to endure because something better was awaiting them in the future. Do we have that mindset? Now, let's be honest. I, I mean, this is difficult. Difficult for me. Like, I don't want to lose my house, my car, my, my business I spent my life building. I don't want to lose that. Who wants to do that? But I want to challenge us, challenge myself, because maybe we're holding too tightly to earthly temporal things. And when we hold too tightly, good things can become ultimate things, and they keep us from suffering joyfully. But when we look to the future, like the author is saying here, to the better things that await us, we can endure loss in the present. And when that happens, our faith will be resilient as we joyfully suffer whatever comes our way. And the author then finishes this section by encouraging again this perseverance, which leads to what? It leads to reward. Verse 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now you can see how it all ties together. So the writer began in verse 19, reminding the readers to have confidence because of the final sacrifice of Christ. He showed them how to develop a community where they build a resilient faith. He warned them against falling away, and now he's spurring them on. He's saying, let's go, like a rider spurring on the horse, telling them not to stop. He says, keep going, keep going, keep going. Why? There's a reward. Amen. What is it? The full, benefit, full benefits of salvation in the future. Yes, we talk about being saved, but we always need to be looking towards the future when in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be with Jesus. Amen. He will reign here on earth. The writer of Hebrews is telling the believers, don't stop at checkpoint 24. Keep going. There's something so much better coming. And to experience that reward, you need a resilient faith that will help you get to the end. What are the components of a resilient faith? It's devoted provocation, sober reverence, joyful suffering. And if we live those out, we'll make it to the end. And so as we close our time today, I would just ask you, where are you in the race? Where are you in the race? Have you made it to checkpoint 24 of the St. Croix 40 Winter Ultra? Is your sweat turning to ice? And let me exhort you, if you're ready to stop, remember what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, don't stop, keep going. Don't stop, keep going. There's something better waiting for 
us. Don't throw away your confidence that you have in the blood of Jesus. If you're carrying this backpack right here and it's full of rocks, remember what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. It says, lay aside every weight. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And if you're thinking about stopping because you're tired, take that tired rock out of the backpack and look to Jesus who offers the rest we need. Lay that rock aside. If you're somebody who's experiencing tragedy, take out that tragedy rock and look to Jesus. If you're doubting God's goodness, look to Jesus who weeps with us and who offers us the promise of resurrection in the future. Lay that rock aside. Give it to him. And if you're somebody who's intrigued by temptation, take that rock out, look to Jesus, who is the only one, the only one who can offer true, lasting fulfillment. Give him that rock. And then see how your backpack has just lost its weight. Whatever you're facing, Jesus is greater. He will lighten the load so you can finish the race. Build a resilient faith in him, on the true rock. And when you do, the words of Hebrews 10, 39 will be so sweet and true. But we are not of those, he says, who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And with those words, we can move on next week to the great chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Amen? Amen. Let me invite the worship team up for one final song, and as they come, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I thank you for your people, the saints gathered here today, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and how you preserved us and guided us over the last year and beyond, Lord God. We look to you for the future, Lord. Spur us on, Holy Spirit. Walk with us. Help my friends here today, Lord. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they've experienced a tragedy. Maybe there's, there's temptation that they're facing right now, Lord God. Would you, would you spur us on? Help us to not stop, to keep going, Lord God. If there's, if there's folks here that are ready to give up or maybe haven't made the jump in yet, they've heard the gospel, Lord, and yet they haven't given their lives to you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you bring your conviction? Draw people to the Father, Lord God, as you've told us in your word. May you help us to give our lives to you and recognize all we have is yours. We are yours, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the better sacrifice, that your blood was shed for us, Lord God, so that we could have the full benefits of salvation in the future and live with you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace, Lord God. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.